You know, one of the things I've really loved about having sons is that I finally have an excuse in my life to go and watch live football matches <laughs> at uh, Carrow Road. And um, last November, I took my boys to watch Norwich versus Sheffield Wednesday at Carrow Road. And, um, you know, the difference between the two halves were quite staggering. In the first half, Norwich played absolutely terribly, and they went 1-0 down. And then in the second half, they scored three goals, and they played much, much better. Now, I'm, I'm saying this to sort of advise you not to go and watch Norwich this season, because they haven't done too well since then. But when you look at the epistle to the Ephesians, it, it is a bit like a football match. It's a game of two halves. Uh, in the first three chapters, which we've been through already, we've seen God tell us about this wonderful plan that he had to save human beings, and that that plan would come through his son, Jesus Christ, dying at the cross and rising again on the third day. And that you enter into that salvation, not through any work of your own, but through faith. And having entered in, you join the people of God, the church of Jesus Christ, the great mystery of Jew and Gentile having been brought together through the Lord Jesus. And then, in the second half, from chapter 4 onwards, Paul has been speaking and teaching about how we are to live as Christians in light of this great salvation that we've been given. So we've seen, haven't we, about maintaining the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We've seen uh, about denying the old man and putting on the new man, not grieving the Spirit, walking in love, walking in light. But I, I don't know if you've noticed this, but in the second half of Ephesians, it is very much like a second half of a football match. Things get a bit more intense. Things get a bit more difficult. There are challenges flying in. And I don't know if you've noticed that Paul has been exhorting these believers to do things, to not do things. There's a sense of difficulty that might be there in the Christian life. Why is that? Why is Paul doing that? Well, it's because of something he says in verse 16 of our text, if you look at that verse, it says that the days are evil. Amen. Or in other words, another way of saying that is that the time is evil. Now, when you look at the Oxford Dictionary, it defines evil in this way. It should be up on the screen. It means profound immorality and wickedness. And if you take that definition and look at what the Bible says about evil, you would have to say that evil has been present in this world ever since the Garden of Eden, when Adam fell, when he didn't listen to God, when he didn't do what he should have done, he rebelled against God and sin came into his heart. And ever since then, every human being has had this problem of sin, except the Lord Jesus Christ. It is sin that made man evil in the beginning. It is sin that made the devil evil in the beginning. 
It is sin that makes the world system around us evil. That's against God, against anything to do with God. And that's been the case ever since Adam fell. So you could say that the whole entire history of mankind has been a time of evil. And it's a time of evil now, just as it was back in the Ephesian church's time. And so Paul knew this, and he knew that because the time was evil, there would be temptations. Temptations for Christians to give in to the world system, or to listen to the lies of the enemy, or to listen to your own sinful nature that is in you called the flesh. So he had to exalt them to maintain the unity of the Spirit because there would be a temptation not to. He had to tell them not to grieve the Spirit because there would be a temptation to do that. He had to tell them to walk in love, to walk in light because there would be a temptation to not do those things. And so in verse 15 of our text today, he's kind of summarizing or summing up what he's already said all the way through Ephesians 4 and 5. He says, look, given the fact that the days are evil, I want you to walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. He's basically saying, I want you to live your life accurately, which is what circumspectly means, and I want you to walk your life skillfully, which is what wisdom means. To walk in wisdom means to walk skillfully, and not walk your life as a fool unskillfully. Now, I would have loved what Paul is going to say in this text to be told to me when I first became a Christian. Because you, if you remember what you were like when you first became a Christian, you were on cloud nine, you'd been, you, you knew you were saved, you knew you were forgiven. But after a little while, you start asking questions, okay, well, how do I live this Christian life? How do I live it accurately? How do I live it skillfully? And quite naively, what can happen is you can go along to a Christian bookshop. You've probably done this before, and you see that there's a row there on Christian living, and there's about 50 books there. How to do this as a Christian, or how to do that as a Christian. And all those books are written, I think, with a good heart, but they show us something about Christians, that we often overcomplicate things. This is further exemplified that if I asked 10 of you to come up here and tell me, how do you live your life accurately, and skillfully, you'd give me 10 different answers. Christians often overcomplicate things. And I think Paul knew this, uh, inspired by the Spirit. So he's going to give us something very simple today. He's going to give us two ways that we walk our lives skillfully, that we walk our lives wisely. So the first thing is found in verse 16 and verse 17, where Paul is wanting to show us that the first thing that we are to do if we're going to live our life accurately and wisely is to honor God with the time that he has given. You see there he says after, not as fools but as wise, he says redeeming the time, which essentially means, look, don't waste time, but use your time in a good way. Now, let's think about time for a minute. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
That means that God is the one who has created time. He is the one that's created this idea of a sequential sequence of events from beginning to end. He is, in a sense, separate from that because he's eternal. He can see the beginning to the end, but he can interact with time. And the Bible, I think, makes it very clear that time is a gift from God. In the Old Testament, in the book of Proverbs, Solomon would say things like, don't be lazy, don't waste your time, be diligent with your time because it's a man's best friend. And Paul here is picking up that theme, that time is a gift. He's saying here, look, guys, you know that the days are evil. You know, as I've said earlier on in Ephesians 5, that there's a day of judgment coming for sinners in the world. You know that time is running out for the church to be prepared for Jesus' second coming. Therefore, don't waste your time. See it as a gift that's been given by our Lord Jesus. And he says that what he wants us to do in redeeming the time, verse 17, is to understand what the will of the Lord is. That is how you redeem your time. That is how you use your time wisely. You are looking to understand what the will of the Lord is. Now, he doesn't tell us there how we are to do that. He just kind of makes the statement. But thankfully, Paul has told us elsewhere in the Scriptures how we are to understand what the will of the Lord is. And you see that in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, which says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may, listen, prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So these verses are very clear. If you want to know what the good, perfect, acceptable will of God is, you have to do two things. Number one, in verse one, he says you need to be a living sacrifice. And then in verse two, he says that you need to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So let's talk about those two things first. Firstly, what's this idea of being a living sacrifice? Well, if you think about this, this is a very strange term because you've got opposites there. You've got this idea of being living, which means you're alive, you're you're walking your life, but there's sacrifice, which means death. So how can you kind of bring those two things together? Well, Paul here is, in Romans 12, talking about themes that he's been speaking about already in Ephesians. Remember in Ephesians 2, it says that everyone that's born in this world is born dead in their sins and transgressions. That by nature, they are children of wrath. But... Praise the Lord that in his grace, his love and his mercy, what does he do? He makes you alive with Christ. He gives you his Holy Spirit within your hearts and you become alive. You're no longer dead anymore. You are living life to the fullest that you could do in this world. But then later on in Ephesians 4, he talks about this reality that even though we're alive in Christ, We have this old man with us. We have our sinful nature with us. We have our flesh with us. And that needs to be said no to every day. It needs to be put to death. It needs to be put off 
And that is a sacrifice that every Christian has to make on a daily basis. And so here we have this idea of being a living sacrifice. It's this idea that every day, by faith, you live in the reality that you're alive in Christ. But you also put off, say no, and put to death your sinful nature. That's what it means to be a living sacrifice. That's why Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple, you have to daily deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. In other words, you need to daily be a living sacrifice. And so Paul says, he says, if we live as this living sacrifice, we will be righteous, we will be acceptable, holy to God. And I think that this works in a couple of ways. When you walk as a living sacrifice, by faith you realize that the only way really you can have any merit before God is the fact that when you believe in Jesus, he gives you the gift of his righteousness. Hallelujah. But also, when we walk as this living sacrifice, we also lay the foundation and the ground for the Holy Spirit to sanctify us and to change us from the inside out, to make us more like Christ, to give us the fruits of the Spirit. So not only do we have this gift in a position in Christ to be righteous, but we, people can see that there is a righteousness about our lives. So that's the first thing. If we want to know the will of God, we need to walk as these living sacrifices. But then the second thing is he says that he wants us to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And again, Paul here is, in Romans 12, talking about things that he's already said in Ephesians. Listen to these verses in Ephesians 4, verses 20 to 24. It says there, But you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. And listen... Be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. So, what's Paul saying there? Well, he's saying that listen, when you believe in Jesus, when you're born again, you are given this reality of being a new creation. You are a new creation in Christ Jesus. But the thing is, when you first get saved, you don't fully realize that. You don't really live in the actuality of that. In other words, what the Bible teaches is that when you're saved, you are given the gift, listen, of living for the rest of eternity with and in the mind of Christ. You're going to think like him. You're going to feel like him. You're going to make decisions like him. But we spend our life here growing into that reality. That's what it means to be sanctified. We are renewed in the spirit of our mind. And every seasoned believer in here will probably bring testimony to this. They would say, yeah, you know, I agree with that. When I first got saved, I knew I was forgiven. I knew I, God loved me. I knew I belonged to him, but I didn't really know much about what Jesus thought. I didn't know what he felt like. I, don't, I didn't make decisions like he would. But over the years, I bring testimony to the fact that the Spirit has changed me, that I do make decisions like Jesus. I do think the things that he thinks. I do feel the things that he feels. But how does this happen? How are we transformed? Well, I believe 
It is through the Holy Spirit taking the Word of God and bringing those things together and then being set in our heart so that from within us we can be changed. I say this because in Colossians 3, verses 9 and 10, it says the following. It says, Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed. Listen, in the knowledge according to the image of him who created him. What's that saying? It's saying that we grow and we're changed and we're transformed by knowing more about God. How do we know that? Well, we read the Word of God. As we read the Word of God, as we let it set in, the Spirit takes that and renews us into this image of the one who's made us righteous and holy. Also in Psalm 19, verses 7 and 8, listen to this. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. That means changing the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. I can't think of a better set of verses that teach that it's the Word of God by the Spirit that changes us from the inside out. So that's the second thing. We need to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And when we do these two things, when we walk as living sacrifices, when we are transformed by the renewing of our mind, we will know, listen, the perfect will of God for our life. Now that might look different for each of us. For some it might mean that we are going to be involved in ministry. For some it might not. For some, it might mean that you're going to go and live in a different country. For some, it might mean that, unfortunately, you're going to live in Norfolk for the rest of your life. But it all, listen, it all, whatever it is, leads to the same destination. It all leads to being made into the image of Christ. It all leads to being made to love God more and love other people more. Now, I know this is difficult, this idea of, you know, what is the will of God for my life? I mean, me and Emma were talking about this the other day, and we were saying that, you know, when you look at the world and you look at the church, there are so many needs, there are so many things you could be involved in. Should I do this? Should I do that? Okay, well, mm, yeah, I'm not sure. And because there's so many needs and it seems overwhelming, I think it's really important that this is really a very personal issue. You have to, in a sense, I think, block out all of the voices around you, all of the distraction, and go to the Lord and say, Lord, I want to walk as a living sacrifice. I want to be transformed by the reading of my mind. Show me what it is you want me to do in my walk with you. How do you want me to use my time, my talent, my resources, to bring glory to your name. And this is really important to Jesus because, listen, when Jesus comes back, he's going to be looking to see whether you're doing what he's asked you to do. There's that very sobering parable in Matthew's Gospel that talks about the fact that when Jesus comes back, he's looking to see whether his servants have been faithful. And those who haven't been faithful will be cast out. And those who have will hear those words, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. Hallelujah. 
You might be sitting here today and thinking, oh, well, Adam, this is all well and good. You know, you're saying this stuff about walking in the will of the Lord, but I just don't know what God's will is for my life. I've been searching for God's will for ages, for months, for years. Well, can I just make a, a very gentle but direct uh, exhortation to you that could it be that the reason you don't know God's will for your life is because you're not walking one of these three things. You're not walking in the life that God has given you in Christ by faith. Maybe you're walking in the old man. You're not putting him off. You're walking in sin. Or maybe this book has no role in your life. It has no impact on you. You just don't see what the point is in reading the Bible. Think about those things, brothers and sisters. I'm not saying that to make you feel bad, but I want and I believe that Jesus has a role for each one of you in this world, right now, in this generation. But he's made it very clear. There is a way to know the will of God. And it is these things that we've talked about. And when we do these things, we will walk wisely. We'll walk skillfully in this time of evil. So that's the first thing. The second thing that he talks about is from verse 18 onwards, where the second way that we walk our lives skillfully or wisely is by being filled with the Spirit. Now, to understand what Paul is talking about here, we have to talk about another way that the Holy Spirit interacts with people. And that is the idea or the reality of what it means to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. You've probably heard that statement a lot before. You've probably heard it in different contexts, different churches, different circumstances. But what does it mean? What does it mean to be baptized with the Spirit? When does that happen in a Christian's lives? Well, the Apostle Paul believed that people were baptized in the Spirit when they are born again. And I say that because of something that he said in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13, where he says, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one Spirit. Now, the way he says here that by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body in the Greek, that is the same phrase that's used throughout the, the rest of the New Testament that talks about baptism in the Spirit. So what Paul's saying here is he's saying people are baptized in the Spirit when they enter into the church. When do you enter into the church? Well, you enter into the church when you're born again, when the Holy Spirit comes into you and takes residence there. Now, I, I think we have to be, just for a moment, realize that this verse is the only verse in the New Testament that has an authority or a prescriptive authority about the timing of the baptism of the Spirit. And because of that, both myself and John have the same conviction as Paul. We believe that people are baptized in the Spirit when they are born again. And this idea that you're baptized in the Spirit when you're born again is completely in line with what the word baptism means. Because what does it mean? Well, it means to come under the influence of something. 
You know, when you're baptized with water, you're standing there in the pool, one minute you're there, the next minute you're down, and when you're down being baptized by water, you are under the influence of that water. And if someone doesn't bring you up, you'll die. Because that water has a profound influence over you. And that's exactly what happens when people are born again. The Spirit comes into their heart and begins to have an influence upon their spirit. He renews their spirit. He starts to renew their soul, you could say, in making them more like Christ. And so the baptism of the Spirit is this reality that someone comes under the influence of the redemptive purposes of the Holy Spirit in their life. And it happens when they're born again. Now, why am I banging on about this? Well, it's because there is a lot of confusion in the church about these terms, baptism in the Spirit and being filled with the Spirit. You could ask the question, are they the same thing? Are they different realities in a Christian's lives? Do they occur at the same time or do they not occur at the same time? And my intention today is to show you from the Scriptures that these realities are different in a Christian's life. The baptism of the Spirit, as we've seen, is coming under the influence of the Holy Spirit in, in, a, in a redemptive sense. And we'll see in a, a little while that the filling of the Spirit is the overflow of the influence of the Spirit in our lives. They can happen at the same time. They can happen at different times. But they are different realities. And I should say, as a side note, that this is where we would, as a church, or as a church leadership, differ to a, a part of the church called the Pentecostal Church. The Pentecostal Church teaches that the baptism of the Spirit and the filling of the Spirit are one and the same thing. Whereas we would say, no, they are different realities in a Christian's life. So the Pentecostal Church, because of that, makes a profound attempt, I think, to emphasize the second experience of being baptized in the Spirit, second to being born again, whereas we would not emphasize that to such an extent, and we would walk in an expectation that if someone has been born again, they're baptized with the Spirit, and the filling of the Spirit will occur in their life, and that we want to, as a church, as it says in 1 Corinthians 14, pursue love first, and as we pursue love first, the Spirit will bring forth the gifts of the Spirit in our midst. So, let's speak about this idea of being filled with the Spirit. Now, that word filled there in the Greek gives this idea of the, the idea of being filled up to the full. It's, it's like, you know, if you're in your bathroom I don't think I've ever done this in my life, but I, and I hope I don't, but you know you're in the bathroom, you've got the plug-in, you turn the taps on, and you go away, and you don't come back for like 15, 20 minutes. And then you come back, and the whole floor is flooded, and the water's overflowing, you're like, ah, oh, no. But that's what the idea is of being filled with the Spirit. It's a spiritual experience that you occur in your, occurs in your life where there's a filling up of the Holy Spirit and he comes out of you, into your life and into other people's lives. Jesus himself spoke of this in John chapter 7. When he said this in, in verses 37 to 39, he says, On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Listen, he who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. 
But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Jesus himself here is saying that anyone who believes in Jesus Christ will have this experience of the rivers of living water coming out of them. This idea of the overflow or the filling of the Holy Spirit. And so we see that, again, the filling of the Spirit is a spiritual experience that's separate to us being born again. When you're born again, you come under the influence of the redemptive purposes, purposes of the Spirit. When you're filled with the Spirit, it is the overflow of that influence out into our lives. So that's what it is. Why does it happen, though? Why has God said that we should be filled with the Spirit? Well, listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter 4, verses 10 and 11. He says, As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another. As good stewards of the manifold grace of God, if anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. And so what Peter's saying there is he's saying every believer in Jesus Christ has a gift. And so Paul, in 1 Corinthians 12, tells us that when the Spirit begins to manifest in our life, when he begins to overflow, those gifts of the Spirit come out of us for the benefit of other people, for the benefit of the church as a whole, that the church would be edified in the love of Jesus Christ. So we see very clearly that, the, that being filled with the Spirit, listen, this is very important, is not first and foremost for you. It is for other people, for other people's benefit. This is why he says here, do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation. He's saying there, don't be intoxicated with alcohol because it leads to a pointless existence. Anyone here who's been drunk before, which I unfortunately have, would know that being drunk is the most selfish, most pointless thing to do. You're completely out of control of anything. And Paul's saying, look, don't do that, but be filled with the Spirit and be used of God for someone else's benefit. Don't invest in alcohol and get drunk just for yourself. Live being filled with the Spirit for other people. So we've seen what it is. We've seen why there's a filling of the Spirit. Well, how? How are we filled with the Spirit? Well, to understand this, we again have to focus on that word field. And there's three things that I want to say about that word from the Greek. This is very important. In the Greek, that word field is written in the passive sense. That means that we have no control on this, this reality of being filled with the Spirit. God fills people with the Spirit when He decides that He wants to fill people with the Spirit. We don't have a magic trick or some kind of thing that's going to kind of twist God's leg. God does it when he wants to do it. The other thing to say is it's written in the present tense, which means that there is always a need to be filled with the Spirit. A better way to say this is be being filled with the Spirit. And so again, this is why myself and John would differ, differ to the Pentecostal church, because... 
the Pentecostal church teaches that this idea of being baptized or filled is once. There's a second experience which is once. But I think the scriptures teach very clearly that this idea of being filled is a continuous thing that happens in your life. It can be 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 times. There's always a need to be filled with the Spirit because there's always a need for the church to be edified and there's always a need for you to rely upon the Spirit to do that in and through you. And then the last thing is that the way that this word filled is written is it's a command. So this is not an option. This idea of being filled with the Spirit is not an option for super spiritual Christians, you know, like John. Um, uh, it's, it's, it's for every single person. It's a command that God has given. So how do you bring those three things together? Passive sense, present tense, command? Well, I think it's very simple. We are filled with the Spirit by simply asking God to do it. That's it. There's no kind of complex method that you have to follow You don't have to go to a certain church. You don't have to go to see a certain pastor. You don't have to go to a certain part of the world. You simply have to ask to be filled with the Spirit on a daily basis in your own life, in your marriage's life, in your family's life, in this church family's life. We should ask the Lord to fill us with his Spirit. Jesus himself, I think, told us this in Luke's Gospel, chapter 11, where he, wrote the, where he said the following, in verses 9 to 13. He says, So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. If a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And I think that's both being, in a sense, saved, but it's also this idea of being filled with the Spirit. God wants to fill us with the Spirit. And he says, you simply need to ask. And this is such a great leveler for us as Christians. It puts us really in the same place. It stops Christians who think that there's some kind of special method of being filled with the Spirit. It stops other Christians who think, well, now nah, I don't need to do anything. I'm just going to sit back, relax, and just let that other guy be filled with the Spirit. No, we all can ask. Is that true? We can all ask, can't we? We can all ask the Lord to be filled with the Spirit. And I think the reason why we don't see it so much in our own lives or even in our church's life is because we don't ask sincerely. We don't really want to be filled with the Spirit. We don't ask humbly or in truth. We ask with our own ideas, our own ideas about what it should be. We also ask for our own gain. We ask to be filled with the Spirit, first and foremost for us, and not first and foremost for other people. This is why James said, listen, in James chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, he says, Yet you do not have, because you do not ask. 
you ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Brothers and sisters, I believe Jesus would say to us today, I want to fill you with the Spirit. I want to fill you afresh with the Spirit in your own life, in your family's life, and in this church's life. And you simply need to ask me in a consistent way, in sincerity, in truth, with humility, not for your own gain or your own pleasure, but for other people's gain, for other people's blessing. And I have to admit that I can be a better example of this. We can all be a better example to each other of what it means to ask to be filled with the Spirit. So I, I, I believe that Jesus would challenge us as a congregation as we move forward from this text to afresh say in our own hearts, yes, Lord, I'm going to ask to be filled with the Spirit. And whenever I'm around the brother or sister, I'm going to say, hey, let's ask Jesus to fill us. Let's ask Jesus to fill us so that we can all grow in him and grow in his love. So that's what it is. That's why it happens, and that's how it happens. And he ends this section by giving us a practical example of what being filled with the Spirit looked like. He said, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. So here he's talking about individual and corporate, I'd say, praise and worship. He says that you're supposed to speak certain things to each other, psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. You're supposed to sing and make melody to the Lord in your own heart. And then you are to give thanks always to God the Father. Now, I feel that the emphasis that Paul has in this section is to show us that God fills people with the Spirit to meet the needs of the church at the right time, in the right place, through the people that he chooses. Think of this. These Ephesian believers were about to begin to enter into a season of great difficulty or great persecution. And you know, as well as I do, that when you enter into persecution and difficulty, you don't really feel like praising. <clears throat> Excuse me. You don't feel like giving thanks to God. So what do the people of God need in that time? They need to be told, hey, let's give thanks to God. Let's be encouraged in Him. Let's sing songs of praise to Him. Let's speak psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to each other so that we can endure this time, and not only endure it, but grow in the Lord Jesus through this time because God's filled us with His Spirit. God meets the needs of His people at the right time. And He does it through people that He chooses. That's why He says there, be prepared to submit to one another in the fear of God. He's saying, look, you better be ready that I can do this through anyone. I can do it through people that you least expect. And I want you to submit to what I can do through any person in your fellowship, in the fear of God. And I would, I would bring testimony to this in my own life. Because I don't know if you remember uh, a few years ago in 2015, um, I was just about to finish my training as a pastor here at Servants, and I, had to, I was going to uh, teach through 
the book of 1 Peter. Do you remember that? Remember that traumatic experience? Um, um, but at that time in my life, I just start, we just started a family. Uh, I was still working as I was preaching each week. And, you know, I'd, I'd, the Lord had really used John in, in helping me to grow. But I'll be honest with you, I, I went into that experience. And I was like, okay, Lord, I haven't got a clue what I'm doing with this. You're going to have to really do something in me each week. And I bring testimony to the fact that the Lord did do that. He filled me with his spirit so that each week I and we went through each verse of that epistle and I believe that God met the needs of his people. Even through someone that, you know, maybe, I don't know, isn't the best speaker in the world, you know, doesn't feel that great or comfortable doing this, but the Lord still did it because it's him. And that's the thing. The gifts of the Spirit is not about you. It's about Jesus. It's about people seeing the Lord, not seeing you. I would rather you see Jesus when I'm speaking than, you know, this great shirt that I wear. <laughs> so we really do need to, I believe, be prepared, brothers and sisters, be prepared to be used of the Lord. Whatever you, whoever you are in this place this morning, wherever you are in your Christian life, Know this, Jesus has given you a gift. He wants to use that gift to bless other people, and he can use you at any time. So, we've seen today, brothers and sisters, this remarkably simple exhortation from Paul, that he wants us to live a life that's skillful. And there are two things that we are to do. To honor God with the time that he's given us, by finding out the will of God and be being filled with the Spirit. It almost seems too simple. And you might be thinking, there's got to be more to that. There's got to be like 10 points that I've got to follow. But if you feel like that, just think of this. Look at Jesus. Jesus lived what we've been talking about today. Jesus walked in his Father's will. Jesus walked in the scriptures all the time. Jesus walked in the power and the filling of the Spirit to carry out his ministry. So this simple exaltation is in one sense the most Christ-like exaltation in this book. And therefore, given that, let us glorify Jesus by following it. Let's pray.